Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm Kara Ongwili, Associate Director at the Madison Center, and today I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Larry Sabato. He is the Robert Kent Gooch Professor of Politics at the University of Virginia, where he is also the founder and director of the Center for Politics. And on a personal note, he is a mentor and uh, was a co-chair of my dissertation. So thank you so much for joining us today, Mr. S. Well, believe me, Karen, I'm delighted to be with you. And I want people who are seeing or listening to this to understand how terrific you are. You were my head TA for a long time. Then you've been an editorial assistant and uh, have just done a terrific job in lots of different ways. So James Madison is lucky to have- Mr. S, your motto at the center is politics is a good thing. Um, we, you know, I interpret that to be that we need politics to solve major challenges facing our society and democracy. How do you see politics contributing to addressing the challenges we face during this current COVID-19 pandemic? We're seeing it play out, Kara, uh, uh, every day on television and in real life as uh, the president, President Trump, gives his uh, daily presser uh, and has other officials with him. And as most of the key governors in hot spots for COVID-19 are giving their daily briefings, uh, much of it covered on television. So it's easy to see at least a piece of these things going on and to read about it as well. You should always read to follow up what you see on TV to get to get a bigger picture of it. But uh, that's all politics. And people say, oh, they're fighting again. They're fighting again. That's part of the political process. It's part of the negotiation process. It isn't always pretty. Uh, in fact, uh, that was uh, too kind a word, really. Sometimes it's very, very ugly. But believe it or not, the final product benefits from this tug of war between the parties, between the levels of government, federal versus state, and then state and local separately. Uh, and uh, between and among the branches, mainly between the executive branch uh, and the legislative branch, but occasionally and significantly, the courts are involved, the judicial branch too. So uh, this is the system we have. If you want orderliness and precision and no public argumentation, there are a lot of authoritarian regimes that you can live under, but I don't think you'd like it. So I'm grateful for what we have even when it's irritating, uh, even when you sit in front of the television and have to restrain yourself because you want to throw something at the screen. Uh, it's better than the alternatives. It's the worst possible system except for all the others. And Churchill did not say that, but it's usually attributed to it. And I don't care either way because it's true. So our elections are already changing um, during this time. We, we saw this play out in Wisconsin uh, over the last few weeks. Um, in Virginia, in our state of Virginia, there's there's going to be a delay uh, to delay in our in, in our June primaries by a couple of weeks. Um, I wonder, you know, if you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, how campaigning should be conducted during a pandemic and what your advice is for candidates. The number one concern in campaigning, as for everything else, is the health of the public, period. And there's no question that it's better to have live conventions, better in, in terms of politics. Uh, it's better to have big rallies. Uh, it's better to have uh, 
uh, a president or presidential candidate uh, handshaking and kissing babies and all the things that we're used to, except all of that, all of it should not happen. And if one candidate, one candidate for president insists on having it despite the threat to public health, I think voters should take that into account in, in making their decision about uh, their presidential vote uh, because it's irresponsible and it's putting uh, the individual candidate uh, above and beyond the people that he's supposed to be serving. And if you can't react to that and be critical of that, then you're a very tolerant person. In fact, you're tolerant beyond any reasonable level of tolerance. In the, in the last week or so, Republican pollster David Winston wrote that voters are going to judge the Trump administration by the effectiveness of actions taken to address that threat and get the country moving forward again, making the question on Election Day, who does the country believe should be given the responsibility to govern? Um, I, I wonder what your thoughts are on on whether or not um, you know this pandemic will be a central question on Election Day, given how far out Election Day currently is, and essentially what we've seen time and time again over the last few years um, and, and, and in the 2016 election um, and, and during governance, um, you know, whether or not voters may be more forgiving. Well, of course, we don't know because we don't know how this pandemic is going to play out. And we do need to remember what the infectious disease specialists have told us and reminded us of, not just referring to the to the influenza epidemic of 1918-1919, but other viruses. Uh, you often have a second wave and even a third wave. Uh, and generally, it's within six to eight months of the original wave, may even be sooner. Uh, so um, probably it will still be an issue for the general election. But I, don't, I didn't read the column, but uh, David left out the biggest piece of all. And it actually isn't the pandemic. It's the deep, deep recession that we are already in and will extend, according to the best economic analysts, for at least a year. We're not going to be recovering quickly. If we've got a 20% unemployment rate, which uh, many of these people believe we will have or may already have, uh, given the number of filings for unemployment, uh, you, you don't get back to 3 or 4% very quickly. Now, I think fair-minded people are going to say no president should be blamed for a pandemic. Absolutely sure. Absolutely true. But uh, a president can be blamed and should be blamed for lack of pre preparation or dithering, uh, you know, Nero uh, fiddling while Rome burns. Uh, all that's legitimate. So the Democrats have plenty of issues, and no doubt the Republicans will have plenty of defenses, uh, mainly blaming other other entities like the World Health Organization, China, which does bear a good deal of responsibility from what we've learned so far, uh, and political opponents. But uh, that's part of politics, too. Um, so uh, the recession, to me, is, is the key to this election. Uh, how serious is it going to be? How patient will Americans be? And in the past, at least, they haven't been all that patient. They, it depends on the circumstances. They were during World War II, but there's a reason why that was called the greatest generation. They were used to the uh, deprivations of the Great Depression, and our generations alive today, uh, a few are left over from the greatest generation, but it's mainly younger people. 
are not so used to deprivations and, and are used to having what they want when they want it. So a lot of this is coming as a real shock. Uh, staying in, sheltering in place, uh, in the great scheme of things, it is not a terrible uh, imposition compared to the impositions placed on the Great Depression and World War II generation. Uh, but people are complaining bitterly about it already because that's the way we are in modern society. So uh, I, I'm looking to the recession. How deep is it? What more can government do to alleviate the problem? How patient will Americans be? These are questions that we don't know the answers to because in a lot of ways, this is truly unprecedented. So we'll see. I wonder on the on the other side of the coin, um, as we as we think about protecting public health uh, in in having elections during a pandemic, how do you think elections should be administered? I'm in favor and have been for many years of all mail balloting. Uh, if we can't have all mail balloting the way Washington and Oregon and Hawaii and Colorado and Utah, which is a very Republican state, uh, has it then we could at least have a universal access to absentee ballots, maybe an application for an absentee ballot sent to every registered voter. Uh, then they would apply for it and then get the ballot. That's two steps instead of one step, which you have under all-mail uh, balloting. But we, we've got to face facts. A lot of people are not going to feel comfortable, even in early November, going into uh, a voting situation in a confined space with long lines of people, uh, some of whom will not social distance. We've already seen that. They think they know better than the experts, encouraged by certain political elements in America, wrongly to believe that. And uh, I'm, I'm very concerned about it. It's going to reduce voter turnout. Republicans oppose mail balloting, and President Trump has opposed it, because they think that it will automatically penalize Republicans, that a larger turnout will penalize them. In fact, the research shows that isn't true. That's right. Just take older people. Older people are going to be the people most inclined not to go to the polls because they're disproportionately affected and have been disproportionately dying because of this virus. Well, in 2016, people 65 and over favored Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton by 52% to 45%. So you see, if it depresses uh, the elderly or senior citizen vote, it's actually going to hurt Republicans. And the states that already have mail balloting, all the research shows that uh, while it does increase voter turnout at least a bit, it doesn't change the balance of power in the state. If it was a Democratic state beforehand, it stays a Democratic state with mail balloting. If it was a Republican state beforehand, it stays a Republican state after the, after, uh, the institution of mail balloting. So these are myths that are being put out in the public square as though they were facts. And facts still matter or ought to. 
Yes, and we I will post some links to some of that literature um, uh, with regards to the partisan balance um, after uh, uh, mail voting was instituted in those states. And there's a new paper out just this week by Andrew Hall et al. Um, out of the Stanford Democracy and Polarization Lab um, that also you know confirms the previous research and is you know even goes further by showing county by county analysis. Kara, yes. I would encourage uh, your viewers and listeners, if they only can have time to read one thing, and we're all busy, pick the Stanford paper that Kara is going to send you the link to. Read it. At least skim it and get the conclusions of it, because it is a beautifully done study, very empirical, data-oriented, instead of just off the, the top of one's head, as it is for most political figures. Uh, and, it, and it gives you the facts. Read the facts before you automatically assume that the leader of your party is telling you the truth or even knows what he or she is talking about. Mr. S., you have uh, a book. You, you did a book quite a while ago now <laughs> um, on the role of the media. It was called Feeding Frenzy. It was one of the books um, we we had students read um, in, in your class. I wonder how you view the role of the media in this moment. Um, we, we started to to get into that discussion just just now um, in terms of facts versus versus just having pundits talk. Um, and I wonder, you know, what advice you would have for for media in terms of what they should be doing differently to cover campaigns and elections this year and and what they should be focusing on. The media have a more essential role in checking facts than they ever have because we now live in a post-factual era where facts don't seem to matter much, at least with millions and millions of people. And so they must persevere, even though it's difficult. The pandemic limits them in many ways. The tragedy is that uh, cuts in newsrooms, both electronic and print, are going to be occurring with great rapidity because of what's happening with the pandemic. I would encourage people not only not to cancel the subscriptions that you have or stop, stop watching the shows that you prefer, although I hope they're news shows rather than opinion shows, um, add some. I mean, a lot of people have extra time because of our sheltering in place. What a great opportunity to expand your reading environment, your knowledge of politics and government. Uh, so I'm, I'm hoping they can do it, even though they have fewer personnel and less money than ever before. When I wrote that book, Feeding Frenzy, we had a completely different environment. It was pre-computer, pre, except for IBM, that giant computer IBM had. Uh, it, it was pre-cell phone. Uh, pre almost everything. We didn't have cars back then, <laughs> but uh, the, the whole world has changed several times since that book was written. But some of the principles are still the same, which they is are. you have you have reporters and news organizations that are very responsible, and you have reporters and news organizations that are completely irresponsible. And I hope people over time can figure out which is which. And if you're just watching an outlet that agrees with you 100% of the time, uh, you actually would be better off turning off the TV set or, or not reading that online if it's a, it's a print publication. You, you need to have a variety. Let yourself be challenged, and uh, you can do it. it. It takes a little extra time, 
and you have to change some of your media habits, but it's worth it. I've been thinking a lot in terms of this, the, the young, a younger generation of voters in particular, um, and how you know for, for many, especially our seniors this year, um, you know for for them they their first year in college was the 2016 presidential election, uh, and then their their graduating year is is this pandemic, um, and and. You know, we, we we know a lot in the in the literature how they how these contextual moments and these key inflection points can can affect voters. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you see, um, you know, in the future for these for these young people and, and what advice you would give them. I'm going to take the positive side. Uh, they've actually been better prepared for what's ahead in life than uh, young people who've been through college at a quiescent period. I'm not just thinking of the 50s. We've had many many years in the 90s uh, that fit that description. Uh, Some years uh, recently, but not nearly as many. But when you go through these crises and when you have uh, to confront uh, your own norms and change your own norms and also have severe disappointments, which I think this this, uh, pandemic has certainly created for many young people and older people, uh, it strengthens you. The old Chinese proverb we all quote, what doesn't destroy you makes you stronger. That's easy to say and difficult to go through. But I think there's a lot of truth in that. So I would look at the positive side. As unhappy as you may be and as we all are, that we lost uh, half of one critical semester, particularly for the seniors getting ready to graduate, and the thought of having no final exercises, no graduation to celebrate all that hard work over the years, um, that's it's something that will take a while to get over. But because you went through it and because you had that disappointment, you're going to be able to face life's disappointments, which will be more serious, uh, including deaths of friends and family. That's the most serious thing of all. Uh, and maybe some terrible tragedies worldwide or within the United States that we'll all have to come to terms with, you'll be better prepared to do it. Uh, Do you have any insights on what we can expect from the party conventions? Well, uh, President Trump insists he's having a real convention come hell or high water. I hope he doesn't stick with that. Uh, I've been to every convention, Democratic and Republican, since and including 1976, when President Ford beat Ronald Reagan for the Republican nomination and Jimmy Carter beat umpteen other Democrats to get the Democratic nomination. And I will tell you that it's a rare convention that I've been at that I didn't come away sick <laughs> because you ha- it's it's a uh, a uh, petri dish for germs. Uh, you've got 20, 30, 40, 50,000 delegates, alternates, politicians, journalists, uh, analysts, academics, hangers on of one sort or another, crammed into an arena uh, for hours and hours at a time. Uh, long lines, very closely packed to try to get food and sustenance while you're there. Um, And then when you leave, it's the same thing at the hotels. They're just smaller rooms, but they're they're probably even more packed. It's, you're going to get sick. We're gonna have a hot spot. 
in uh, in either Milwaukee or Charlotte or both. Those are the two cities of the conventions this year. If they're held live, I don't think uh, the Democrats will do it. They've already moved it to mid-August. They might have a few events live and uh, carefully space participants so that they are socially distanced, although even that's uh, taking a chance because the latest update on the research is that you really need more like 10 feet between people rather than six feet. Well, you're not going to be able to fit that many people in. It makes a terrible television picture. It looks like most people weren't interested and didn't show up. Uh, I'm not sure it helps a nominee. I don't like the fact that it could be a virtual convention. I love conventions. I've enjoyed every one of them in one way or another. Um, but, you know, we have to change with the times and we have to respond and rise up uh, to the challenges. Uh, now, uh, President Trump has said uh, he will have the Charlotte Convention. I just think it's unwise, even if uh, we're on the downslope, because when you do things like that or you have uh, stadiums packed with, with people or basketball arenas packed with people, we all like to watch the games. We like to cheer. We like to be with our fellow fans and maybe boo the other side. That's part of human nature, too, and politics are out. But we're going to have to give up some of that for, for at least the time being until we get a vaccine. So I don't know what's going to happen. I hope that we put public health first. We, we ask one final question of, of all of our guests. What would you do to strengthen democracy? Oh, my goodness. Now, look. I know you've written a book about it. <laughs> you know I have that book, A More Perfect Constitution. I do. And I made and explained at some length 23 changes that I think ought to be made to the U.S. Constitution. Truth is, I don't support about a half dozen of them. But uh, like a lawyer, I wanted to make the best argument for each of those changes because it encouraged classroom discussion. Some of them were terrible ideas. And students figure that out. And then they feel very proud of themselves that they have destroyed, deconstructed one of the ideas of the lecture. So um, that's a good way to do things too, and a good way to do classes. Uh, don't let them know what you really think and let them either praise or criticize what you said. And they can't automatically assume that you believe precisely what you have told them. You've said things to them to stir the pot and to get them interested in the debate. So I, you're asking me to pick and choose among my uh, children, and I will not do so. My constitutional children are equal, and people will have to take a look at the book. Some of them have, uh, have uh, uh, stayed uh, rather well, I, I have to say, and I, I wouldn't change a word for some of them. Others are less relevant uh, today for one reason or another, but uh, uh, I'm, I'm grateful that a lot of them are still very relevant, and I think I was ahead of the, the curve on a lot of these matters, uh, changing uh, presidential rules, election rules, and uh, the Electoral College, although I don't abolish the Electoral College. I, I say we need to mend it, not end it. Uh, a lot of changes in Congress, abolition of gerrymandering, uh, and on and on. And also, no life tenure for Supreme Court justices. That's I right. think a 15 to 18 year term is plenty because they they lag behind uh, the predominant generation that's governing. They're way behind the times. <laughs> you you represent your own generation much more than than you do younger generations. And so 
Uh, I'm not going to go into any more of them, but I hope you'll take a look at it. You know, read the library copy. I'm not encouraging you to buy it and part with, with money, particularly not in these times. But take a look at it and see what you agree with and what you disagree with. But think. It's all about thinking in the classroom, reading books, reading newspapers, watching television news. It's about thinking, you're thinking, not they're thinking. And maybe we can give everyone an assignment to send us their own constitutional amendment. That was our that was our paper in the class, and I loved that. And I I still get I'm sure you get you get notes from from previous students as as I do. Just when they were they're so excited when when they see it in the news um, because they remember writing that paper and being able to think and make an argument for themselves about what they would do to create a more perfect union. And, and some of them say I was first. I thought of this first. Why aren't they citing my paper from Government 101? <laughs> So uh, it's, it's great that they remember. And by the way, they also remember, as you know, Kara, the guest speakers. They yes. remember those senators and governors and former presidents or whoever may be coming in long after they've forgotten every lecture we ever gave. And that's the way it should be. Those are special times and they influence them probably for a lifetime. They remember these things forever. So that's a that's a wonderful thing to accomplish in a classroom and it doesn't happen very often. I can tell you that much. Thank you. Thank you so much for for spending time with us today on Democracy Matters. We know you're very busy and we appreciate your time and we also thank you for for all you do to strengthen our democracy. Well, you're very kind Kara and I'm always happy to do it for you. You were indispensable and in some ways still are. We're still working together on many things. So I, I just salute JMU for having the wisdom to hire you and put you in the position you're in because you're perfect for it. And to the students in your classes, how lucky you are. I want you to hear that from me, how lucky you are. Thanks a lot and you all have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by the talented and tenacious Leah Jackson, a senior in the School of Media Arts and Design at James Madison University. Our digital guru, Randy Budnickus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the Madison Center online at jmu.edu slash civic. Until next time. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.